Welcome to Legal Toolkit, bringing you the latest legal trends and business initiatives to help you manage your law firm with your host, Jared Correa. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to another episode of the award-winning Legal Toolkit podcast here on Legal Talk Network. If you were looking for Graham Greene, I would then have to ask you, which one? If you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a first-time listener, hopefully you'll become a long-time listener. And if you're Alan Jackson, you're a lot taller than most people think you are. As always, I'm your show host, Jared Korea, And in addition to casting this pod, I am the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, which offers subscription-based law practice management consulting services for law firms, bar associations, and legal vendors. Check us out at redcavelegal.com. I'm also the COO of Gideon Software, Inc., which offers chatbots, a first-to-market chatbot builder, and predictive analytics created specifically for law firms. Find out more about that at www.gideon.legal. Lastly, you can listen to my other, other podcast, because I don't have enough to do. That's called The Lobby List. It's a family travel show I host with my wife, Jessica, on iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and comment. But here... On the Legal Toolkit Podcast, we provide you twice each month now with a new tool to add to your own legal toolkit so that your practices will become more and more like best practices. So in this episode, we're going to talk about legal tech entrepreneurship. I've got a great guest for this today. Couldn't think of anybody better to address this topic. And before we get to that, let's take a moment to thank our sponsors. Answer One is a leading virtual receptionist and answering services provider for lawyers. You can find out more by giving them a call at 800-ANSWER-1 or online at www.answerone.com. That's www.answer1.com. Scorpion crushes the standard for law firm online marketing with proven campaign strategies to get attorneys better cases from the internet. Partner with Scorpion to get an award-winning website and ROI-positive marketing programs today. Visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. TimeSolve is the number one web-based time and billing software for lawyers. Providing solutions since 1999, TimeSolve provides the most comprehensive billing features for law firms big and small, www.timesolve.com, without the E, T-I-M-E-S-O-L-V.com. My guest today is Peter Gunst, who is the co-founder and CEO of Legal.io, which builds technology and tools to make finding trusted legal help easier. Before founding Legal.io, Peter worked as a tech lawyer in Brussels for DLA Piper. He studied at Stanford Law, and Peter is all about leveraging technology to improve access to justice. Hey, Peter, welcome to the big show. Thanks for having me, Jared. Yeah, I feel like this is overdue. I'm glad we're finally able to do this. So I'm going to kick this off with a serious question. You, you spent a lot of time in Brussels, right? So Brussels sprouts is what we call them here in the States. What are they called in Belgium? Like hair sprouts or something like that? <laughs> well, you know, we're very proud of our sprouts. Uh, Belgium has been cultivating them since the 13th century, so we just call them sprouts, but we appreciate it if you call them Brussels sprouts. Oh, nice. I like, what, I like how you did that. You should be on, like, the marketing team for Brussels sprouts. They've asked me, but, you know, I'm pretty busy these days. You're a busy man. I, I personally like. I personally have to say that I love Brussels sprouts. It's one of my favorite foods, which I know is maybe a weird thing, um, but I've loved Brussels sprouts since I was a kid. They're delicious. All right, enough of that. Let's talk about legal tech. I ask this of every legal tech founder who comes on the show, and I kind of want to get your response as well. You practice law. 
like many folks who found legal tech companies. Why did you stop doing that and start doing this? It happened maybe somewhat accidentally. So as you mentioned, I worked in a big law firm, DLE Piper. I was in the intellectual property and technology department. I was having a really good time. I I was a young attorney. I I got to do very uh, big cases for big clients. But at the same time, coming at it from a bit of a technology interest and background, just quickly became clear to me that we were doing a lot of repetitive work that probably could be done in a more automated fashion. But it was hard to you know, derive that within the law firm. And on the other hand, as a young lawyer in Belgium, you get to do a lot of pro bono work. And so I saw that other end of the spectrum and, and really, frankly, a lot of the misery that people that get in touch with the legal system but that don't have a big budget go through. And that touched me deeply. And then I ended up in 2010 getting a scholarship for Stanford Law School. Entrepreneurship wasn't a fixed idea in, in my mind then yet. But once you land in Silicon Valley and you see the hundreds of people trying and doing, these patterns become pretty clear. And after being hired uh, for a brief stint at SurveyMonkey, I was the second attorney at that company. I decided to kind of make the jump based on all the examples I'd seen and start something myself based on these experiences as a lawyer and, and my belief that some of the things we were doing could be done better or more efficiently some or all <laughs> or most <laughs> well I, I wouldn't say it's all bad i would just say that there's a lot of room for improvements and and that lawyers aren't necessarily trained up to to see those opportunities yeah i get that uh, it sounds like being a big firm lawyer in belgium is way nicer than being a big firm lawyer in the states I think it depends on who you end up working for. It's such a person-based business, right? And I had two partners I worked for. One of them had done his PhD at Stanford, which is very much one of the big reasons I ended up there. And I was just lucky having some forward-thinking partners to train me up. So I'm very grateful for that. Hit or miss, I guess. (laughs) Right. So this is not like easy, starting a legal tech company or starting any technology company, frankly. So it's not like a garden path for you from law practice to legal tech founder. So what are some of the biggest challenges you've encountered in making the switch and how'd you overcome those? (laughs) I think one of the biggest things probably initially is unlearning the lawyer mindset. And what I mean by that is that you're trained to see risk everywhere. And, And entrepreneurship oftentimes is tearing into the risk, being cognizant of it and taking it. And so it's a different approach and a different mindset. And, and I think, you know, as we started adding people to the team and, and basically lowering the percentage of lawyers on our team, uh, that's been very helpful to, to get these different perspectives of people. And I think that was a big thing because I think as lawyers, if, you, if you're cognizant of all the risks around you, especially in a heavily regulated industry such as legal, your risk is, of course, that you don't do anything at all. I think the other thing that's kind of interesting is that if, if you run a business, you've you got to triage what are the things that are important today, what should I ignore, even though it's going to be important in the future. And, and that's something that I felt looking back at my period as a lawyer, I didn't always necessarily understand where the priorities for the client's business were 
and now running a business myself, I get have a much better grasp of, well, okay, these are things that I can frankly ignore. These are things that I need to uh, address today. And that doesn't come naturally. And I feel that legal education to a certain extent miseducates you for when you're actually then making the jump and starting a business. And I think more generally, probably the biggest challenge in running any business is, is just the people management. It's definitely the least predictable part, just being able to build a team, having them work well together, having them all pull on the same string, right, and work towards the same mission. I think that is one thing that I'm incredibly proud of, that we've been able to do that with a, with a team of, of 10 people now. And we hope to be able to scale that up as we had 20, 30, 40, 50. But I'd say that's a big challenge for, for any entrepreneur. Um, and it certainly helps if you have done it before, but I came at it as a first-time founder. Yeah, I mean, that's great insight. And it sounds like you, you had a lot of lawyers on the team to start out with, and then you reduced that number, or you added non-lawyers to get some perspective? <laughs> yeah, we started the company with three lawyers. Always a bad idea, right? <laughs> yeah, it became two lawyers, not too long after that. And so we learned from, it wasn't a mistake, but we just needed to reconfigure because we were starting to talk to investors. These investors were saying, yes, we're interested in funding this project, but you're going to have to make X, Y, Z changes. And then it just became a, a matter of, well, if we agree that these changes are necessary and we would like to continue to exist, then we need to make these changes to the team. And that gives for some difficult discussions. The good thing was, that we had all the paperwork in place as lawyers to deal with a situation like that. And it was relatively frictionless. And, you know, the one lawyer founder who left the company is to date still my best friend. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, lawyers have paperwork on lock, if nothing else. Yeah, exactly. All right, so this is a good start up. My dogs are barking, so let's take a break. Here are some things you should buy. Do you feel like your marketing efforts aren't getting you the high-value cases your firm deserves? For over 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours to attract new cases and to grow their practices. As a Google Premier Partner and winner of Google's Platform Innovator Award, Scorpion has the right resources and technology to aggressively market your law firm and to generate better cases from the internet. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast today. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I didn't get any better author offers either, so here I am. I'm here talking with Peter Gunst of Legal.io, and we're here podcasting about the nature of legal tech startups and corporate management. All right, Peter, so you talked a little bit about how you transitioned from lawyer to tech founder, talked a little bit about some challenges you had in doing so, including managing people, which is definitely a common challenge for founders. What advice can you now offer to other legal tech entrepreneurs kind of looking back on what you've achieved at this point? <laughs> I can maybe talk about all the mistakes I made and turn them into advice because uh, we certainly made a bunch along the way. But I think one thing that is important and, and all of these things, things are going to sound trivial, but they're not if you're in the thick of it and you're building a business because it's just easy to forget. So one thing is to just validate ideas cheaply and quickly. It's very easy to come at building a business with a certain preset list of assumptions, 
and to get them wrong. And I think that we certainly, in the first iteration of our software, we did that too much. And we could have built less and talked more to people, showed them more drawings on napkins, and just have saved a lot of money and time. And it's very easy to fall into that trap, certainly if you've been a practitioner and you have a certain preconceived notion of, of what things should look like, but that doesn't mean that other stakeholders, such as the clients, will engage the same way. So validating ideas quickly and cheaply is definitely the, the one thing that if you can ingrain it in your mind and make it a core habit, the one thing that, that's going to save you so much uh, anguish and, and just straight up dollars. And talking about dollars, and, and this is maybe a second piece of advice, it's also understanding your market and, and how you will make money. And I, you know, when we started out the business, and this came a bit from the experience of doing pro bono work in Belgium, we went to the dean of Stanford Law School and we asked him if he was interested in sitting on the board of our nonprofits that was going to help poor people find attorneys. That was where we started out. And the dean looked at us and he started laughing very loudly and he told us no. And he told us to maybe come back if we, you know, found a scalable business model. And he also recommended not creating a nonprofit because it would be too hard for a bunch of immigrants to raise money from traditional foundations. And so I think that's interesting too. And we were lucky to get guidance from some people with much more experience that, that kind of gave us direction. Um, and helped us again, like put the business on a on a on a path towards sustainability. Another tip that I would give is, um, and I, I touched on this earlier, is to find people who think differently than you. One of the, I think, amazing properties of our team is that we've been able to put together people who are just like on the radically different planes of thoughts. And sometimes that's difficult and it causes friction. But the end result is always that you come out with better solutions that are just more fully fleshed out. And, and you kind of have to learn how to communicate. And just, you know, through for working with engineers, customer success, business and sales, right? All these people come with their own interests and, and their own perspectives and combining them is a very powerful thing if you can do it well. And then maybe my last advice is to not start another legal marketplace. Because there's just like a thousand of them already, and it's an incredibly <laughs> hard proposition. But if nice. you were to consider doing so, send me a message on LinkedIn or give me a call, and I'm super happy to talk about some of the challenges and opportunities there. Absolutely. You're a very engaging guy. I can confirm that. I think you make a good point about, I think people, especially lawyers, don't want to rush anything, right? And they have like this perfectionist mindset. And so it's true, like getting a product to market is hard because you have a certain vision for it and you're not going to be able to achieve that overnight. Like software development is a long-term thing. And if you had like the perfect product, you'd have no additional versions of it. So there's no real reason to keep people interested in using it. So that is a great point that you make, I think. And so in following this up, like you've talked a little bit about the people you want to engage you talked a little bit about strategies that you want to utilize. So how about like resources for legal tech founders? Like what valuable resources are out there like outside of people and outside of strategies that have been tried? Like where would I look for generic resources that might help me start a company if I'm coming to this and I've like never done it before? 
as you kind of did. One thing that I, I keep seeing a lot is founders that, um, and I was kind of joking when I said, don't start another legal marketplace, but I also like very regularly see people getting into that. And then they say, we're the first who does X, Y, Z. And there's just kind of a lack of understanding of the very long history of legal tech effort that has happened over the past two decades. A lot of this stuff just built on the history. So I think one incredible resource is a tool called the Stanford Tech Index. And it's basically a um, directory, categorized directory, hosted by Stanford Law School, which uh, gives an overview of every legal tech company known internationally. And this is a really good jumping off point to see how others have tackled a certain problem. And probably for every problem that you can think of, there's going to be a company in there that's tried it. And one thing that's very interesting is that we, because I'm involved in in this project and hosting this data and keeping it up to date, it's kind of the survival rate of these companies. It's depressing, right? (laughs) If you go back three years, most of these companies have, you know, passed to exist. So I think that the number one thing in terms of first orienting your idea is to use a tool like this and understand what else is out there and understand how you might be able to differentiate your offering. Now, another big one that I've had a lot of utility from is, uh, and this is more in the context of them making it happen, is basically just the crunch-based investor list uh, where you'll find over 250 investors and investment funds of varying sizes that have invested in legal tech. And I'm not telling you to send those people an email, your slide deck, that's not how it works. But one thing that you should be cognizant of is like six to nine months before you're intending to start fundraising to identify those individuals that might be advisors to your company to build a relationship with them and then get their guidance once you actually start the fundraising process. This is really something that needs a lot of prep and a lot of personal relationship building to be successful. And it's also so easy to underestimate the time that it will take. So in my experience, typically, six-month turnaround time is a good outcome. You might be able to do it faster. It might take longer. But that's the kind of buffer that you need to build in. And that then obviously, um, you know, plays into your your timelines. But Crunchbase as a fundraising resource is really good. Better than Crunchbase's personal relationships uh, and, and investing the time to build those out. And then other than that, I benefit a lot from the various communities out there and, and people coming on your show, spreading their thoughts. Twitter is huge for me. I made a lot of friends there and it's just an easy way to exchange ideas and to get feedback. And so I feel that more and more of those, that network intelligence for founders is also moving online, which lowers the barrier and, and hopefully will lead to more innovation in our space. That's an excellent answer. Lots of great resources in there. And we'll get to Twitter. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> the last question for this segment of the show, at least, and I think this is a challenge for folks who are starting a company. I think the notion is that like you define success by how much money you make, but that's not the entire idea of being successful as a business owner. So how do you personally define success for yourself and your business? And then how does your company 
define success and then how does that change potentially over time? Oh, that's a good question. And I guess indeed a difficult one. I think if you ask me what success is for the company, it means that all its stakeholders, meaning its investors, its employees, and also our customers are well off because of our existence, right? And this is basically purely a business calculation where these people are investing their time and our money, and that needs to yield. That's the business. But I don't wake up feeling good about, well, I feel good about it, but about the amount of dollars that came into the bank account. I look at the number of people we've helped. And, you know, I think last week we crossed the threshold of 1.25 million people who had used our service. We've facilitated over 150,000 referrals. Uh, as a result of that, we tracked the outcome for almost all of them. And it's those stories, you know? It's those people who were evicted from their house or that founder that was going to be charged $20,000 for a simple incorporation by some big firm. And we were able to avoid that. It's really a very, I feel, story-driven feeling of success. It's seeing these little successes and knowing that you made a difference in the life of an individual or a company. And, and the beautiful thing about that is that I can never not be successful anymore having built this. We've done that. It's had, you know, this morning we've helped 300 people connect to an attorney. That's success. That's making a difference. Now, obviously you can feel good about those things. If you don't make the business sustainable and successful, you can't keep doing that. So that too needs to be the outcome. But I, I, I do think it's fair to look at success on those two layers, right? You have success for the organization, which is mainly focused around the sustainability. And then I think individually, and most of my team members would answer the same thing. It's about the impact we have and the, and the people we help. I think one of the wider and, and maybe longer term goals one of the things we've been doing, and we're now doing this with four state bar associations and a whole range of, of local programs, is collecting a lot of data on legal service delivery. And I think one really nice outcome would be that when I pass the baton, that we've really made a difference in making this traditionally very opaque, opaque industry more transparent and that clients actually know what something should cost, that they actually knew whether this lawyer was any good and they should indeed work with them. And I think at the meta level, that, that's the thing that I'm incredibly excited about coming at this as a lawyer and having seen that, you know, it's not transparent at all. It's not efficient today. And it's about time that that changes. And the problem is certainly big and important enough to make a serious effort to achieve that. Yeah, that's cool. Great answer. And we will talk about bar associations after this break. So while I go look for the monkey I lost last week, Listen to these words from our sponsors. Imagine billing day being the happiest day of the month instead of the day you dread. Nobody went to law school because they love drafting invoices for clients. At TimeSolve, our attorneys save on average over eight hours a month in billing work. That means more billable time and turning billing day into happy day. Learn more about how to get to your time and billing happy place at timesolve.com. That's www.time S-O-L-V, leave off the e, dot com. Remember, that's T-I-M-E-S-O-L-V dot com. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter Answer One Virtual Receptionists. 
They're more than just an answering service. AnswerOne's available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. AnswerOne helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call yourself at 800-ANSWER-ONE or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. All right. Thanks for coming back again. I hope you're enjoying this show and the significant amount of whimsy it carries along with it. Let's get back to our conversation with Peter Gunst of Legal.io, who's talking to me about how to found and run a legal tech company. Let's find out more. So, Peter, you work with bar associations, as you just mentioned, prior to the break. So do I. And I feel like everyone wants to work with bar associations without exactly knowing how to do that. So what advice do you have about how legal tech companies can effectively work with bar associations? Because I think this is kind of relatively a new thing in many ways. I think as in selling anything, it's really building a very deep understanding of what needs there are and what kind of solutions might cover those needs. I think bar associations are in a very, very interesting position right now because, and this is a bit similar to law firms because the role that they traditionally have played supporting their members is somewhat under attack by a whole range of alternatives, many of them driven by technology, right? For example, a bar will provide community to its members, but now there's so many other ways to do that. And for us, it was really conversations with the leadership of these bar associations, understanding where they thought the future was going, things that they were concerned about, and then seeing if, if what we were building was effectively addressing that. And so a lot of it was neat finding. And, and one of the things that happens if you're selling into law firms or bar associations is that that neat finding and the sales cycle that results from it tends to take a very long time. And you have to take that into account when you're thinking about your, your timelines, your financing strategy, et cetera. It took us about a year before we got our first bar association on board. And this was once we had completed the entire product. Now, once you have a couple of these customers and they can act as references, the process speeds up. But every time still, it's, it's basically coming in, talking about the particular situation of the bar in that jurisdiction, because it will, for example, differ depending on whether they're mandatory or voluntary, and then matching a solution to that need. Or if you're not the solution, recommending another solution so that you, know, you nurture that relationship and actually position yourself as a trusted point of, of contact if they ever have questions about technology. No, that's a good point. And I think like bars, I think a year is maybe like short. <laughs> like I've heard, of these, I've heard of these deals taking longer than a year to close. Uh, but you're right on a lot of points there. All right. So now here's your chance to wax even more poetic than you already have. What technologies or innovations in the legalist space are you personally, my friend, most excited about? Ooh. Well, um, I know, have at it. Very simple. It's the invention of blockchain. Good the, It's the technology that, that powers Bitcoin, uh, which in itself is a very, very interesting evolution. So it, it allows for the transfer of a digital asset, of a value, without an intermediary like a bank. But the underlying technology, blockchain, at the same time, creates a sort of database system where information cannot be tampered with. But it has some other interesting properties. For example, Walmart is using this technology to coordinate all the different actors in its supply chain 
to share data with each other. And in particular, they're doing this for the supply chain of lettuce because the lettuce spoils very quickly. Interesting. And, and I think the opportunity here and the thing that I'm very excited about is I, I mentioned a couple of times throughout this, this conversation that one of the things that's lacking in legal is transparency, right? It's the lack of data. There's no good standards to express a, a legal matter. Um, there's been various efforts, but they never cover the entire supply chain of legal. They look at a, at a small subset, for example, you know, what in-house counsel would care about. And one of the things that I'm very excited about is all the efforts that are now happening in the space. And, and they touch on blockchain, but don't exclusively use them. A lot of them are, are on data standards. It's to basically create some of these baseline data standards that will allow us and that will allow systems to express the data in the legal supply chain in a more standardized format. Think about the notion of an SKU, a stock-keeping unit, right? Everything that Amazon sells has this unique identifier. We need this for legal so we can start measuring things more effectively. And I think we're going to close this decade having laid a lot of the groundwork for, for then achieving that in the next decade. And it's going to have a tremendous impact because it's basically going to start bringing much more price transparency in the market, which is going to make it much harder for the incumbent players to charge whatever, right? You're already seeing all these alternative legal service providers enter the market, doing certain things cheaper. The scope of what they can do cheaper will expand more and more. And I just think we're going to see a much more efficient supply chain driven by some of these technologies such, such as blockchain that I mentioned. The other thing that blockchain does, and I'm really summarizing it for the, the purpose of this discussion here, is it basically allows pe people to have more control over their digital identity. Right now, we have a database. We manage user information. We manage information around certain legal issues these users have. Imagine a world where a user can have their direct control over that information, choose whom to give access, similar with a medical record, right? And, and so recent advances in encryption are putting us on a track where a company like mine, somewhere in the future, will no longer have direct control over this information, but rather will get permission from the user to use it for a while, and the user will be able to retract it. Think about a Facebook Connect that the user directly controls. And I think that's a really big deal and all the evolutions that we're seeing now in privacy law everywhere and also the nature of the information that we are handling is I think putting us on this track where we're kind of going to see a, a different model for control over data that's more directly in the hands of the user. And, and I'm very excited about that, that uh, proposition because it's a risk reduction for businesses and it also opens up the the landscape around this data sharing and these standards in a way that can drive much more efficient markets. All right, everybody, get ready for the 2020s. Hold on to your hats. I think it's going to be a wild decade for legal tech. <laughs> nice. All right. Whew. All right, we got through the big legal discussion. Now I want to introduce my new segment here, which is one of my favorite things. This is truly delightful. Where I read a tweet one of my guests wrote, and I asked him about it. Are you ready for this, Peter? Sure. Good. That was mostly a rhetorical question. All right, here's your tweet from Valentine's Day 2019. You wrote in dialogue form, me, 
press confirm button in Uber ride-sharing app. App, 0.3 seconds later. Your car is here. Me. Wow. Hello, driver. How are you here already? Uber driver. I'm your neighbor. Cue Twilight Zone music. Me. What a time to be alive. All right. (laughs) Several things to unpack here. I'm going to let you do most of it, but do you feel like it's good or bad that you don't know your neighbor well enough to know that he's your Uber driver? And also, what kind of Easter, uh, excuse me, Valentine's Day candy did you get on that ride? Maybe to the airport? (laughs) Well, I definitely felt bad that I didn't know my neighbor at all, let alone that he was an Uber driver. And I thought that was kind of this telling dystopian tale of living in a big city that's highly technologized. There's also just a lot of thoughts about how these apps exert control over people, right? And tell you where to go, how long to do it. So yeah, I did feel pretty strange that I didn't know the man, but he did make it up with candy. So I kind of forgot about it towards the end of it. <laughs> there you go. It's kind of more like a Black Mirror episode than a Twilight Zone episode, actually, now that I think about you know, it. And the reason I wrote it is because we're getting used to pressing a button and getting what we want 0.3 seconds later. And it's, it's gone totally. thus far that if, if people in San Francisco use any of these ride-sharing apps and that car doesn't arrive two, month, two minutes later, they get angry. And one of the reasons why I wrote this is because there's no reason, no reason at all, to expect that it's not going to be different for consumers of legal services, right? This kind of behavior and thinking just going to permeate every industry. I want it now, I want it at the best price, and I want it provided by a trusted entity, which Uber solved through its rating system. Legal is, of course, much harder, but the same rules apply. And whoever solves that problem and provides that convenience and transparency, it's going to eat a, a big piece of the market. I like how you brought that back around. I really wasn't expecting that. Well played, truly. <laughs> this is also why kids but, are so yeah, annoying. Everything I write, really. Yeah, you're a beast. Everything I write really comes back to legal tech. <laughs> I knew that. And this is why kids are so annoying, too, because I tell my kids every day, I'm not Netflix. Like, just because you want toast doesn't mean toast is going to appear on your lap like 0.3 seconds later. <laughs> There's a process here. <laughs> Also, why I carry around just a flip phone. They're just going to start a vote to replace you with Netflix. They might just think it's the better dad. Hey, and that might not be untrue. <laughs> and we should probably end on that note. We've reached the end of yet another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast. This was the podcast about legal tech startups and management, and we've been talking with Peter Gunst of Legal.io. Now, I'll be back on future shows with further insights into my soul, the soul of America, in the legal market, as I now question the viability of my fatherhood. Um, If you're feeling nostalgic for my dulcet tones, however, you can check out our entire show archive anytime you want at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Thanks again to Peter Gunst of Legal.io for making an appearance as my guest today. It's been long overdue. All right, Peter, can you tell everyone how they can find out more about you and more about Legal.io? Sure. Uh, Just go to our website, www.legal.io. Uh, You can sign up there as an attorney or you can reach out to get a demo of our platform, which is geared towards connecting people to trusted legal help. Awesome. Thanks again. That's Peter Gunst of Legal.io. He's the CEO and co-founder. Finally, thanks to all of you out there for listening. This has been the Legal Toolkit Podcast, where there are always four or more Valentine's Day cards for Glenn Coco. Thanks for listening to Legal Toolkit. 
Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join host Jared Correa for his next podcast covering the current business trends for law firms. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.